Well, this morning we are going to return to our study of Matthew chapter 10 and Jesus' commissioning of the twelve disciples into gospel ministry for the sake, he says, of the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now the disciples are being sent out two by two into the towns of the northern region of Galilee and they're armed and equipped with nothing except for the message that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the Messiah, the Christ, who has come into the world to save people from their sins by giving up his life on the cross at Calvary. And all who follow Jesus in his physical death and resurrection must also themselves die and come back to life spiritually. And so we are united to Christ in such a way. Every person who belongs to Christ must be born again, Jesus says. But once we have been born again to new life, We are called to follow Christ as disciples. Today and for the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at discipleship. We're going to talk about that probably in uh, in greater detail than the text might initially lend itself to. But I want to spend some time talking about discipleship. Today we're talking about the cost of discipleship. But much like with the Twelve, we are called to the ministry of the Gospel in places where Christ is not yet named. And there is a great joy in being a disciple of Jesus Christ. But we also know that there is such a cost to following Him. And in this passage, Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 to 39, it really is sort of feels like one unit here in the text. This outlines the high cost of following Jesus Christ with the most sobering words really appearing in verses 24 to 31. Yet while the Lord offers challenging words to His disciples, words they weren't looking forward to hearing, He also gives them words of great comfort, not just to the twelve of Jesus' day, but also to be applied to the church in every age. And so if you look with me to Matthew chapter 10, we're going to read verses 24 to 31. The Lord Jesus says this, "...a disciple is not above his teacher." nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Therefore do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light." And what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. But rather fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows." Now again, the Lord has separated out the twelve, these specific disciples for Himself, a very specific ministry He's calling them to, to Galilee, to minister to the Jews that are living there. But very quickly we realize that their current mission and the mission moving forward is far more expansive than that. And it goes even until the second coming. We are on the same mission that they began, not geographically certainly, but we're on the same mission to proclaim the gospel to every place that Christ is not named. 
But as we look to these verses and draw out the meaning, we begin to see that there are timeless truths contained in them. And as we consider these verses, I really want to look at this passage in two main parts. So two parts to this passage I think are helpful for us and really help our our mind frame around the argument that Jesus is making here. The first part pertains to the reality of opposition. The reality of of opposition, and the second part is going to pertain to several reasons why we are not to fear. And I think you're going to see this broken up pretty, pretty simply. Now keep in mind that we are dropping ourselves right in the middle of this passage. We've been here for several weeks, and so we've been building up to this point. So if you would like to go back and listen even be, uh, before this to some of the messages to kind of frame this better in your mind in the future, certainly uh, you're welcome to do that. But just for our purposes, we are dropping right in the middle of this text. And I trust, however, the Lord will encourage you uh, to look deeper. But in the first part of the text, again, Jesus is telling about the reality of the oppression faced by the Christian disciple. He notes really a maxim here. A maxim is a self-evident truth, and this is certainly true here in the context. Verse 24, look again at verse 24. Jesus says, "...a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master." Now he's going to bring into use two analogies here. One is of a disciple and the teacher, and the second is a slave and the master. Now, both statements really express the same truth, but I want to look at them individually. First, he says here, a disciple is not above his teacher. A disciple, if we want to define that word, a disciple is a learner or a student of a teacher. And more generic, more than a generic student of many teachers, you know, you go to school and you're a student, but you have several teachers that are instructing you. More than that, a disciple is an intentional, focused student on one teacher. So if I weren't to go and and sit under many, many teachers, but I was going to go follow one teacher and give all of my time and all of my energy and all of my study to one person and have them instruct me, I would be a disciple of that one teacher. In many ways, uh, discipleship becomes a more dynamic, all-encompassing education which incorporates instruction and transformation of the whole person. When you're you're a disciple of somebody else, you're not just getting their information, you're, you're studying their life. And a lot of times when you see a person who's a disciple of another person, they tend to pick up many mannerisms. I just finished a biography on R.C. Sproul, and R.C. Sproul, even though he learned from many teachers, the key teacher in R.C.'s life was a man named John Gerstner. And when you go and listen to John Gerstner teach, or you hear, see video of him preaching, so many of the same mannerisms, even the vocal intonation, even the growl that he had, R.C. picked up and really did the same thing in his life and ministry as well. So we see that kind of done where the disciple really becomes a student of their teacher in so many different ways respects. Now, we do see examples of students surpassing their teacher in the general sense. That happens all the time where someone's student is, is greater and more intelligent and more wise and goes beyond their teacher. But in the context here, this never happens of disciples of Jesus. We never become greater than our teacher. Furthermore, the reason for the statement becomes even more clear in a moment why he says what he says, but then he brings the illustration even further. Look at the second phrase. He says, a slave is not above his master. Again, we see sort of a natural hierarchy inherent in the relationship. The slave never dominates the master. 
And that's certainly true of Christian disciples. The word for master here in the Greek is kurios, which is also the word lord. And we know, according to Romans chapter 6, that we are ourselves called slaves, not of sin and of lawlessness, but we're actually called slaves of righteousness through obedience to Christ. That's who we are. If you've never considered the fact that you're a slave to Christ, if you belong to Christ, well, let me change some of your verbiage. That's who we are. Paul uses the word bondservant a lot, but even when you look at the original Greek, the word he uses oftentimes for himself is doulos, slave. He says, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, the ultimate goal, according to Jesus in Luke 640, is for the disciple to become fully trained, fully trained and to be like his teacher. And so we are meant, you and I as believers, we are meant to become like Christ in the way that we think and speak and act. But as we grow to be like him, we also endure the same kind of hardship as Jesus Christ, which is why he says in verse 25, the next verse, it is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. But then he says this, if they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of that household? Now, he says here, it is enough. Now, what he really means, and if you study this phrase out, it is enough is really in the context, uh, it is uh, content. We are to be content with becoming like our teacher. That should be enough for us to seek to be just like Jesus. But then he speaks to the reality of our hardship as disciples. Once we have become more like Jesus, we'll never be fully like him until we see him in glory. But the reality is that the more we become like Jesus, other realities begin to creep in as well. He says, if they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of that house? Here, Jesus speaks of the opposition to Christianity. And in doing so, he phrases it in what's known as in philosophical language, an if-then statement, an if-then statement. So if this reality is true, then this other thing is also uh, true. That's a propositional logic. I learned about this in college. I didn't do very well in college with the course, but hopefully I've improved a little bit in that. But Jesus uses that statement here, and he notes really first the attacks that he himself receives. He likens himself to the head of the household, While this is not normally an image of Jesus that we see, it no less is fitting considering that he is the Master and the Lord. We call him Lord Jesus. But only that, in 1 Timothy uh, 3.5, Paul likens the church to God's household. He's referring to elders who serve in leadership capacity. And the qualifications are if a man can't lead his own household, how is he going to take care of the household of God? So we see church broadly uh, aligned with this idea of being a household. And then Christ himself is called the head of the church in Ephesians 1, 22, Colossians 1, and so on. So we understand even ecclesiologically that the, the church itself does not belong to any one leader in terms of a pastor or an elder. Uh, the church belongs to Jesus. He is the head over this body. And so it's not a far stretch here for Christ to be regarded as the head of God's household, which is the church. And he says here, if our opponents to the head of the house call him Beelzebul. Now, Beelzebul, what is that? Who is this speaking of? 
Well, when we study this out, the origin of the term is fairly uncertain. Scholars are kind of uh, divided over where the, uh, the origin of this word comes from. But loosely translated, Beelzebul, it either means Lord of the Flies, which some of you might understand that phrase where that comes from in popular literature, but it's also translated in some cases, Lord of the Dung Heap. Lord of the Dung Heap. If you know what that is, you know what this is talking about. This is not exactly a flattering designation. There are several iterations of this kind of word, Beelzebub. Even the pagan god of Ekron in 1 Kings chapter 1, he's a pagan god. He's called Baalzebub. You know the god Baal, the false god? Baalzebub. But Bible scholars have universally understood that according to the first century Jews who were using the term, it was a reference to Satan. It's a reference to Satan. In fact, we understand this is corroborated by an event that takes place later in Matthew chapter 12, verses 24 to 27, when the Pharisees, they behold the miraculous works of Jesus Christ, His power, His glory. They see Him doing miracles, but because of their hardened heart, they don't give glory to God for these miracles. Rather, they attribute them to the power of Satan. They say in verse 24 of this chapter 12, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. So they see Jesus healing a man or healing a person or bringing them back to full health or, or casting out a demon or healing a paralytic. And they don't see this miraculous thing and say, wow, glory to God. They say, this man does this by the power of Satan. Now, frankly, this accusation is absurd. And Jesus calls them out for this in verse 26. He says, if Satan casts out Satan, if he's divided against himself, then how can his kingdom stand? You're, you're telling me I'm driving out demons? Satan is Lord of demons. You're telling me I'm driving out demons by the power of the Lord of the demons? That's insane. He rightly calls them out for this. There's no logic in the charge at all. It's slander at its worst point. But that's how slander always goes. It's never rational. Slander is always polemical and malicious. People just make up lies because it hurts somebody else. There's no logic to it. There's no truth to it. But Jesus' point here is that if our spiritual enemies see the wonderful works of God performed by Jesus Christ, who is our leader, our teacher, our master, our Lord... If they see that and attribute that power to Satan and call him Beelzebul, the Lord of Dung, then what are they going to call us who submit ourselves as his servants and his slaves? Sadly, so many Christians today want to be able to have the luxury of following Christ, but don't want to ever suffer ridicule for doing so. We don't want to see any pushback. We don't want to experience any criticism or any pain. They don't want to make any enemies for themselves by following Christ. They want to take a biblical stance and then receive pushback. And oftentimes what they'll think is, oh no, people are mad at me. Therefore, I better apologize in reverse course. And not make that position or change that position. But somehow the existence of resistance means that what we're doing and saying is wrong, even though it's biblical, that somehow I have to change according to popular opinion. But my friends, let me tell you, we are not politicians pandering to a voter base. 
That's not who we are. We're not seeking popularity as believers. We are Christians. We are Christians. We belong to Jesus. We're seeking fidelity, faithfulness to Christ. In fact, that's why Paul says in Galatians 1.10, For am I now seeking the favor of man or of God? Or am I still striving to please men? Then he says this, If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant, a slave of Christ. You can't serve and please both God and man. If you're seeking the praise of man, you will never have praise from God. It's just that simple. Popular Christianity is an anachronism. There is no such thing, really. Now, there is sort of the existence of acceptable norms. There is morality that might be accepted. But when you really stand in the public square and you declare the truth of the Word of God, people aren't going to like you. Why not? Because inherent in the very gospel we preach is the reality of sin and the need for repentance and salvation. You tell a person that they've sinned against God, they don't like that. I don't want to hear that I've sinned against a holy God. I don't want to hear that I'm wrong. That's inherently what sin and the need for forgiveness is. That all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Nobody wants to hear that. But it's the truth. It is the truth. Friends, following Christ means that you're setting yourself up to be hated like Christ. In fact, he tells his disciples in John 15, 20, a slave is not greater than his master. He says this, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. J. Gresham Mason said, if you're not being persecuted for your faith, you're probably doing it wrong. Now, as we saw last week, we are not to seek persecution. We're not to desire it. We're not to do foolish things and chase after it and then claim persecution when people respond. However, we should not be surprised when it comes. And we should not assume that we've done something wrong or change our position if people don't like what we have to say. Let me just give you a few examples. I could say these statements. A man is a man and a woman is a woman. A marriage is between one man and one woman. An unborn baby is still a baby. Now, those are not political statements, believe it or not. Those are biblical positions. Those are statements of morality. But to hold positions like that today in the public square, you put a target on your, bar, on your back. And regardless of how charitable you are and how you express it, people will still hate you. For something as simple as calling something as you see it. Following science, believe it or not. The great cost of discipleship is that you will receive all of the ill treatment and persecution of your teacher. It's not a matter of if, my friends. It's a matter of when. Now, you won't always be persecuted to the final degree. They will not always pull you out in the public square and flog you and burn you at the stake and things like that. But you will suffer. You will. Just a a quick story, a good friend of mine who lives in Indianapolis, he was, he's an architect. He designs and they build buildings around his design. And at his job, his boss came to him and said, I want you to design this. And they, he put the plans in front of him, or the, the job in front of him, and it was for an abortion clinic. And he went back to his boss and he said, with all due respect, he said, I, I can't design this building. 
I'll do anything else you want. If you have any other work for me, I will gladly do it. I'm happy to work for you. I love this job. And the boss said, that's all we have. He says, I'm so sorry. I I can't do this. I cannot design this clinic where it's going to be taking the life of unborn children. And the boss said, if you don't design this clinic and I have no other work and I don't have any choice but to let you go. And he said, is there any other work I can do? And the boss said, no. Pack up your things. And so he did. He left. He was fired for not designing this clinic. And so he trusted the Lord, and the Lord gave him a different job. And believe it or not, he's actually doing better and has a higher position in his new firm than he did before. But the bottom line is that, my friends, that's just one example. Your faith will cost you. Now, I don't know what. I don't know when. But we have to get this out of our minds that I hope that I don't suffer at all for being a Christian. That should just be banished from your thoughts because it's not a reality. 1 John 2.6 tells us that the one who says he abides in him, talking about Christ, ought to himself walk in the same manner as he walked. If Christ endured persecution, we should also be willing to follow him in such a way. Regardless of the opposition, Christians are called to think and believe and speak and act like Jesus Christ, with grace and mercy, but also with truth. Now, this might be a hard pill to swallow. You might be sitting here thinking, I don't think I like this. Maybe you're a new believer, you're new to the faith, and this wasn't something you signed up for. This is challenging, this is difficult. And you might say to yourself, I don't know if I can handle this, I don't know if I can endure scorn from people that I care about. We're going to see in a couple weeks, it's going to be from your own household, by the way. People in your own family are going to turn on you. I'm just going to tell you right now because that's what Jesus says is going to happen. And you might think, I don't know if I can do this. Which is why the Lord gives three reasons. Three reasons not to fear persecution. He's here to encourage you as well in this teaching. And I want to do so as well. So for our time remaining, we're going to look at part two of this passage. These are reasons not to fear. Reasons not to fear. Now that it's out in the open and we will endure opposition and persecution and people are going to be angry with us and call us names, now that we know this truth, here's reasons not to fear. The first reason comes to us in verses 26 and 27. Building on the reality that Christ, our head, has been attacked and even called Satan, he says this. Look at verse 26 and 27. Therefore, do not fear them, For there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. And what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. When Jesus says, do not fear them, who is the them? He's talking about any person who means to attack Christ or His church. And there's lots of people who attack Jesus Christ and attack the church of Jesus Christ. Sometimes it's overtly, they'll... Stand on the street corner and they will tell you exactly what they think of you. Other times it's more subversive. And it's more, it's an undercurrent, if you will. Sometimes people will attack the church. They'll say, well, I'm not not attacking the church. But then they actually go in and try to hurt the people who are in the church. And so you have to see that for what it is. We're always under attack by the outside world. Again, the immediate context here, going back to the context, is slander. People have called Jesus Satan, essentially. But this happens all the time. We get called names, we get lied about. Here's the thing. Here's why people do it. The opponents to Christianity, 
They want it. Their goal is this, to tarnish our reputation in order to invalidate the message. If they can somehow take us out of commission, then the thing that we're saying is no longer true. Make sense? So the message is the gospel. The message is Christian truth and the biblical truth of God. And so if somehow they can remove us, the mouthpiece, they can just block their ears and not hear what God has to say. And so they will slander you, they will lie about you, and they will spit things that are false about you all the time. One example, one of the most hated Christians in the last 400 years, certainly in American history, is a man named Cotton Mather. And even by saying his name, it conjures up images of bigotry and malice and judgmentalism and wickedness. But nothing really could be further from the truth. Cotton Mather was born in 1663 to a family of faithful Christians. He had a long line of faithful believers all the way back into England. He soon became a pastor with his father in Boston at a church. And he had a long and fruitful ministry there. And actually, if you look at, if you read the documents and read history, his father was actually kind of the more stodgy one, Increase Mather. Cotton was actually a very lovable guy. People in town actually liked Cotton Mather. Um, He's a little quirky, but he was a great guy from what his congregation said. But some people flat out hated him. And one such man was a merchant named Robert Califf. Califf was not a Christian, as far as we can tell. And he made no bones about the fact that he disliked the Mathers. And throughout his lifetime, he published many different accounts of accusations against them. One of the most wicked accusations published against them uh, came after an event of an, an attempted exorcism, exorcism excuse me, of a 17-year-old girl named Margaret Rule. Now, in a culture that's heavily influenced by superstition, that's the 17th century, 16th century, 17th century, uh, Mather and his father increased. They were called in to minister to this troubled girl. And there's a crowd of people in the room. Now, during the episode of this ministering to this girl, however, Robert Califf alleged that the Mathers removed the girl's clothing and assaulted her during the episode. However, 40 witnesses were in the room and all said everything to the contrary. That it never happened. It's a lie. But that didn't stop him from spreading the lie that, they had, that he had done these things. Later on, during the wake of the, the Salem witch trials, it was Caliph again, Robert Caliph, who pinned the worst of the evils of the Salem witch trials on Cotton Mather, despite the fact that Mather was never actually at any of the trials. But the damage was done. Even after Mather's death in 1728, the caliph accusations were still being trotted back out in the 19th century by theological liberals who wanted to mischaracterize and attack conservative Christianity. And so for the last three centuries, Cotton Mather has been vilified by those who should otherwise know better. I'm thankful, though, however, in the the last several years, 20, 30, 40 years, there's been sort of a resurgence of Mather scholarship, and now all of the biographers, academic biographers, recognize that everything that was said about him is basically a lie. I'm thankful for that, that he's being vindicated, but it took 300 years to vindicate the man. But that's always how it goes. Uh, Word to the wise, don't keep a diary. Just Cotton Mather did that, don't do that. It gets pretty personal. That's just food for thought, don't do that. But I'll tell you, people will always think the worst of you. As soon as you talk about confessing sin, examining yourself righteously, professing faith in God, they're always going to vilify you. The world persists in lying about Christians because of their hatred for Christ. But the Lord promises this. Look at your text. There is nothing concealed that will not be revealed, 
or hidden that will not be known. Certainly he's referring to the truth of the gospel. The gospel is going to be revealed, and certainly that is true of what the disciples' ministry is going to be. But he's also referring to the vindication of the saints and righteousness. If people lie about you, don't worry. Don't worry, because the truth will always, in the end, come out. One of my personal heroes has a saying, time and truth go hand in hand. It's totally true. Over the course of time, people will jump in right off the bat, and they will slander you, they will lie about you, but you wait enough time, and the truth will come out. God will vindicate His people. He always does. Evil and slander will not abide forever. Truth will, in time, be revealed. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 5, verses 11 and 12, Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you, and listen to this, and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. He tells us it's going to happen. They're going to lie about you because of me. But he says this, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Those who were in Israel, they lied about the prophets too, and they even killed them. But the prophets were vindicated. The truth of God is vindicated. Read church history. All of church history, the faithful are always vindicated. And so do you feel like you're being hated because of Christ? You're in good company. You're in good company. And so what are we to do when we face all of this? Look at verse 27. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. For what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. In short, in summary, keep speaking the truth. It doesn't matter what people say about you. It doesn't matter the lies and the slander that are hurled at you. Keep speaking the truth. Whatever the Bible says, whatever you hear whispered in your ear by the ministry of the Holy Spirit through His Word, whatever you hear, whatever He says, don't shy away from it. You don't need to apologize for the Word of God. Yes, there are challenging verses. Yes, there are things that have to be explained. Yes, there are things that are culturally unpopular. But it doesn't make a difference. This is God's timeless truth and it always is vindicated. God never needs to apologize. He doesn't come to His own defense to people. Well, the reason I did that is because He never does that, does He? God just speaks and acts and knows that it's right. And so trust Him. Speak and act the things that are fitting of truth. And so again, the first reason not to fear is that God always vindicates the truth. Encourage your hearts, believers. God will always vindicate His truth. The second reason not to fear comes in verse 28. Look at verse 28. Why are we not to fear? Short, because God is greater than man. Look at verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. If you were to survey a large number of people, you'd find that there is a dominant fear right now of sickness and death. A dominant fear. Again, look at the events of the last 18 months. We've always been afraid of these kinds of things, but it just keeps on getting heightened and heightened and heightened and heightened. We are a people who are virtually paralyzed by fear of sickness and death. But even in the realm of Christian persecution, the absolute worst that an opponent could ever do to you would be to take your life. 
slander you, you can always just block your ears, say terrible things, come after you, you can always move. But if they come for you to take your life, if they kill you, really, if you think about it, it's the worst thing anybody could ever do, is take your life. However, the Bible is clear that the worst thing that could ever befall a person is not to die physically, but rather to suffer the judgment of God for eternity. That's far worse. They take your life here, it's gone in an instant. You suffer for a little while and then you're gone. It's so momentary. But to have to sit under the wrath of God for eternity is far worse. Far worse. In the face of attacks of man, the Bible declares the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord. For those who don't know God, they ought to fear Him in terror. For those who do know God, we are still to fear Him, but we fear Him in a different way. We, we awe and we stand amazed at His power and His might, but we also stand in awe and in amazement of His love and His mercy. But the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Conversely, Proverbs 29 says that the fear of man brings a snare. You start worrying about what other people think of you, you're going to get in all kinds of trouble. It's going to be worse for you. Why? Because everybody's opinion of you changes, doesn't it? And no two people say, think the same thing about you. So you're always bending and flexing and changing and you, you don't have any place to stand anymore. You don't even know who you are anymore. Jesus says, do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. And in the end, the enemies of, of our life here can only hurt us physically on earth for a short time. But in light of eternity, this is such a small thing. When you consider the scope of man's power, this is so small. The worst they could do to you is just a very tiny thing. But then we consider God. Isaiah 10, 18 says that God, the light of Israel, the Holy One, He will destroy the glory of His forest and of His fruitful garden, both soul and body. Soul and body. The one who created the body and created the soul is the only one who is able to destroy both. Mankind can't touch your soul. They can't touch your mind. What you think and believe. They can bring affliction. They can bring persecution. But in the end, you stand before God. They can't, they can't steal you. They can't touch you. People and governments can only kill your soul, but only God can go after the soul itself. Therefore, Jesus says, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, Jesus is not making a theological statement here. He's not advocating for the doctrine of annihilationism, that your soul will be destroyed and cease to exist. That is not what he's saying. We understand the soul is eternal. The point that he's making here is in light of facing, as Paul says, momentary light affliction in this life, we are not to compromise our Christian witness for the fear of man. Fear God who is able to do far worse to those who deny Him. Which is what Jesus says in a few verses later. Rather, we are to acknowledge that God is higher and loftier and more powerful and more terrifying. 
John Knox, the Scottish reformer, has famously said this, fear God and you'll never have any reason to fear any man. Even further, he says, when it seems like the world is against you, Knox says, a man with God is always in the majority. Athanasius was one man against the world, contramundum, they said. He wasn't against the world. The world was against God. And so we are not to fear the insults and the abuse of man because God is greater. Encourage your hearts, beloved. Your God is greater than anything anybody could ever say to you. And then there's reason number three not to fear. Number three. Why are we not to fear? Because God is our provident protector. Look at verses 29, 30, and 31. Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Here, Jesus uses a different kind of logic, a different kind of argument. He uses what's called an a fortiori argument, which is really known as a lesser to greater argument. And this, here, here's how this works. The idea is this. If the lesser thing is true, then the greater corresponding reality is even more true. Okay? From lesser to greater. And so here, in verses 29 to 31, he juxtaposes common birds... To beloved disciples, birds to people. And he makes note of a sparrow, a common bird that would have been sold at the market for meat. These are just very cheap meat birds. He says they were so inexpensive you could buy two of them for a cent. It's interesting, you'd read Luke's gospel of the same account, and in a different place, Jesus says you could buy uh, two for five. So I don't know which, which market is a better price on sparrows, but Jesus says here you could buy two for a cent. And here the word cent is a sarion. It's a one-sixteenth of a denarius. One denarius is a whole day's wage. So one-sixteenth is a very tiny amount. It's a, it's a couple pennies, really, in the context. And so sparrows are cheap and common. Yet, Jesus says, not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father. In other words, even though these are the most insignificant creatures on the planet, God fully and acutely is aware of all of these creatures and is aware when one of them perishes and falls to the ground. Hundreds of millions of birds in the world Who knows when they are born, live, and die? It's something you and I never see the reality of. But God knows. God knows every single one. And He's fully aware of what happens to His creatures. Because God knows all things. He's omniscient. And here is the a fortiori, the lesser to the greater. If God is keenly aware of the things that are happening in every corner of His creation, then is He also not aware of what's happening with you? And Jesus makes virtually the same argument at the end of Matthew chapter 6. He says, while the birds neither sow or reap or gather into barns, he says, the heavenly Father still feeds them. God still feeds the birds. Ever see a bird fly with a suitcase overhead? You ever see apartment complexes for birds? They don't have storage bins like we do. They carry nothing except what they can hold in their beak. And yet none of them, you never see birds that are emaciated and skinny and starving to death, generally speaking. 
What's the, what's the grander truth here? God cares for even the birds. But then following in this theme of small things, he's talking about birds. Look at what he says in verse 30. He says, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Again, he's thinking very small now. The millions and millions of birds. And I read this week that the average human head consists of 140,000 hairs. And God knows about each and every one of them. Now, some of you, by way of hairs, give the Lord a lot less to worry about. But generally speaking, the maxim is still true. That if God knows every single fiber, every single cell in your body, every single hair on your head, and God cares about those, just like He cares about birds, that's the smaller truth, isn't it? Our sovereign Lord acquaints Himself with the finite details of even small things. Here is the big truth. Look at verse 31. Do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. He's not talking about hares anymore. He's not talking about birds anymore. He's talking about you and me. God cares. This is so encouraging, isn't it? In the face of opposition, in the face of suffering, in the face of persecution, in the face of insults, God cares about you. You don't think that when someone hurls an insult at you for being a Christian, that God doesn't hear that? And keep record of that. You don't have to defend yourself. The most respected people that I know that are believers never defend their own honor. Why would you? That person is this. That person is that. Oh, did you hear what they did? Why defend yourself? Why take up your own offense if it's not true? We tend to think that because God is busy running the universe, He has no time to worry about trivial concerns of ours. But that's not true. God does care. He cares about every bird, every hair, every insult, every hurt feeling that you have. When you're going through trials, when you're suffering, when you're hurting, even if it's small things. Ever, this, I'm sure this has happened to you before. Somebody says something that's so small, it doesn't mean anything. They don't even realize that they say it. But for some reason, it just hurts you. It cuts you a little bit. And you go to maybe one of your friends or your spouse, and they say, what's wrong? Oh, somebody hurt my feelings. Well, what'd they say? And you're just so embarrassed to even say it because it doesn't mean anything. And if you were to say it out loud, the person would say, oh, come on. But somewhere deep down inside of you, you think that it just really hurt. And you fob it off like it's nothing. God knows. He hears what's being said. He knows the effect that it has on you. He knows the challenging decisions that you're making. He knows what you're up against. God knows you. And you are worth far more than any other creature in the world. He cares. He says you're far more valuable. Now, when it comes to the injustices and the slander and the abuse and persecution of Christian believers, let me tell you, God is our defender and protector. I'm reminded of Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? 
When evildoers come upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and they fell, though a host encamp against me. My heart will not fear. It doesn't matter if it's you against the world. Remember, a man with God is in the majority. It doesn't matter what people say. It doesn't matter what they do. And so what will following Christ cost us? Well, it's going to cost you comfort. It's going to cost you the praise of man. It might even cost you your life. But we are not to fear. Because God's truth will prevail and He will vindicate His people, you can be sure of that. Because God is greater than any earthly opponent, you can be sure of that. Because God knows His beloved children and He has promised to care for us. You can be sure of that. Therefore, my friends, stand firm and declare the truth. Don't waffle on your positions. Be gracious, be kind, but stand firm for truth. God will defend you. Because Jesus Christ is our Lord. He is the Savior of the world. And He's given us a charge, a message to declare to all the nations that although every single one of us has sinned against God and rebelled and turned our own way, we are prone to wander, as the song and the, and the Scripture says. We are prone to wander away from God. Everyone is. However, God is reconciling people to Himself through Jesus Christ. Jesus who lived a perfect life, fully God and fully man, lived on earth and lived a life of righteousness, and then gave up that life of righteousness on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. He died and was cursed, went into the ground and rose again on the third day to bring new life to all who would trust Him and turn from their sins. There's no greater message than that. And I'll tell you, for those who are perishing, who don't want to hear it, you say that message and they will curse you. But to those who are being saved, to those who need Christ, and they know they need Christ. Talk to people now, they are hurting. Even though this is a difficult time in our history, in our culture, there is no better time to give a message of hope to people who are hurting. I don't want to go too far with this, but this period of our nation's history could be prelude to revival because people are hurting and they want truth. They're sick of being lied to. They're sick of being afraid. They want deliverance. They want God. They want to know when my body dies, when I'm gone, where do I go? You tell them, yes, you've sinned against God. Yes, you've turned from Him, but there's hope in Christ. Repent of your sins. Put your life and your faith in Jesus and He'll save you. And guess what? In the worst obstacles, they have joy. We have joy, don't we? That God is our great Savior. He loves us and cares for us and defends us and brings us together in fellowship and in love and gives us work to do. And it's good work. Gospel ministry is good work, my friends. It's a work that you and I are called to do. But don't be afraid. Stand firm and know that God is here for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your loving kindness. God, we thank You that we have nothing to fear in this world. And Lord, there have been so many saints that have gone before us, men and women and children, 
who've given up everything, their own lives, for the cause of Christ. And Father, may we be worthy to suffer in there in the same way. Not just like them, but like our Lord Jesus. And God, we would never wish harm on ourselves. We never would desire to be hurt. I don't want that for myself. I don't want that for my family, Lord. But at the same time, whatever you call us to, we know that you will give us endurance and strength and fortitude and conviction and the grace that we need to endure. Help us, God, not to march ahead for our own causes, but to march ahead for the cause of Christ, to boldly declare the truth that there is salvation to be had, that all people everywhere are to turn from their sins and trust in Jesus and live in obedience to Him who was our Master and King. Help us, Lord. Build us up internally, Lord. Give us the grace and the mercy that we need for today. I pray for Your people even now. In Jesus' name, Amen.